What's up, Charisse? How are you feeling after your little hybrid Kit Kat croissant Which? thingy? Where? Hey, let me let me. We should paint start a picture. by reviewing the food we just ate. All right, paint, paint a picture. As paint of a picture last with week, your words. as of last week, I told Charisse, "Hey, maybe you're not eating enough food, which is why you're always tired. Because ever since you started teaching, you're on your feet more." Eating less, eating less, less time to eat. Exactly. So I was like, hey, why don't you just like add, you know, 250, 300 calories? I said that because it's basically like a serving for like a chocolate bar or something. Yeah. Mm. Sound advice. And I have been attempting to do so, failing mostly. So I, I came into the booth and what do I see? I see Sharice stuffing a Kit Kat into a croissant. Okay. Well, <laughs> I came with a Kit Kat that I was planning to eat because it's around lunchtime right now. Obviously, that is indicative. That doesn't sound like a lunch. That, I know. That is indicative of me not eating enough. I came with a lunch of a Kit Kat bar. I walk in. Eugene very generously says, I have a croissant for you from Bakehouse, a bakery here in Hong Kong. And I said, excellent. It was for me. And then while Eugene stepped out of the booth, by the way, to buy himself a hot, a hot dog, dog. Next I door. combined the Kit Kat and the croissant. And it was very good. Shen said it was high end. Yeah, it sounds like. Some- hey, if you. Did the croissant with like Kit Kats and marshmallow and to be fair, like, there's took a blow torch to it. Yeah. You could sell it as like a s'mores croissant, which how was the hot dog? Yeah, it was okay. I don't know, wow. man. I don't I don't really eat hot dogs. My experience with hot dogs are like shitty, like fifty cent wieners you get in bulk. So I don't really have the same type of vocabulary when describing a gourmet dog that is like five times the price. Yeah, I think most people balk at spending five US dollars for a hot dog. Okay, last question before we go into the actual subjects we're talking about. What do you think is the most crucial hot dog condiment? I knew you were going to ask this. How did you know? Because I questioned the condiments on this hot dog because there's no ketchup. And I think that might be a Chicago thing because these are advertisers, Chicago hot dogs. Chicago dogs don't have ketchup. I don't know. I just assumed. I think they don't. One, what, there's one that is like pro ketchup and one that's pro mustard, right? I'm a pro mustard. I used to not like mustard as a kid, but I don't mind it. Honestly, for me, it was always all three of them: mustard, ketchup, and relish. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyways, let's get started. You go first. This is making it up episode 185, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, shop discounts, exclusive newsletters, and more. This week, I told Eugene these are the three subjects that I already have prepared in the sense that I can talk about it without having to do new reading, which is, again, a reflection on my current schedule. Eugene picked the one for which, actually, I was prepared because of classes this week. 
That means if you are my student, perchance. Yo, have they listened to any past to episodes? Podcast, I have been told that they have. Some of them have told me they have. Thank you very much if you are my student. This subject comes directly from slides that I have prepared for actual classes that I taught this week. So basically yeah, we're getting a free this. education. We're kind of getting a free education. I mean, yeah, it depends on how much you value higher education, I guess. I mean, I wish I wish I could put a more uh, impressive dollar amount. Like, you know, if you taught at a Ivy League school, it'd be like, hey, this is the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollar a year. I teach at a government funded university in Hong Kong, FYI, to folks. OK, I literally have slides. Eugene can see them. It's quite funny. We can link to the slides. I suppose that's all right. I may. I made is it them. Fair so if I critique, it's my property. Is it fair if I critique the slideshow on critique? And I analysis? suppose so. It's fair. So anyway, the subject which we haven't even really gotten into is how to take and give criticism. And I guess because of this context of me preparing this for school, it would be how critique happens in design schools and what is its purpose i feel as though i'm lecturing now i feel like i've slipped somehow into like lecture mode instead of making it up mode the reason i did this is because this week we actually did do two crits in two of my classes and i was thinking about this beforehand and crits happen a lot in design school i assume that crits is like short form for critique yes critiques i assume that you didn't do critiques in school because you no, I didn't, didn't go to design school. I didn't go to design school or art school. Yeah, so I wanted to cover my approach to critiques with students because there is some, hmm, what did I say, confusion? There might be different understandings of what a crit is. What do you think a crit is? What a critique is? Well, actually, is? before you were going to ask that question, I was going to ask you a question. Well, actually, it's not really a right or wrong answer, but it's quite important for you to understand what is the premise of the critique so that you can prepare work that fits the critique. But then in some ways, it also pushes the work in a certain direction. Because you know how some people create work that is critique friendly versus work that actually needs to be made? Mm, deep thoughts. Well, I'm just yeah. saying like anytime you have a measure against something, there's an expectation then it'll naturally push it in, in one direction. Well, I don't think that the work necessarily needs to be made for the critique so much as it needs to be established when you're going into the critique, which you said, what the goals are of it and the context in which this is happening. So there need to be a kind of foundation set. And actually, even though I did this for design school students, critiques happen in companies all the time. You might not call it critiques. You might call it just feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's really the same thing. In a very, very general sense, a critique is I mean, is critique when, review. Like, yeah. I review work all the time. No, exactly. You are actually giving critiques all the time. It's Editing is critiquing. when someone shows you their work and you give feedback. So what I was trying to address is that there can be confusion if you don't talk about upfront about how people should respond and what people should do with the feedback, like what action should they take afterwards. And I was doing some reading and there are some interesting articles out there. The main one that I think folks could be interested in is called How to Take Criticism. And it's written by Chappelle Ellison. 
it's quite humorous. I'm going to read a quote from her. I firmly believe you can be a critic while being kind and open-hearted. I don't even care if that sounds naive. Most people think the number one goal of a critic is to judge whether work is good or bad. They are wrong, IMO. The number one goal of a critic should be to make things better. That's it. Criticism only secedes when everyone wants things to be better. The moment you sniff out that a critic's goal is not to help you make things better, boy, bye. Yeah, that's pretty valid. Yeah. In some ways, maybe things I could change are that, well, I'm thinking about from a restaurant critic perspective, right? Like a restaurant critic doesn't inherently care whether the restaurant experience and food improves, but they create a product that allows readers to make an educated opinion on whether they should spend their money at that restaurant. Mm. So that would be an example that came to mind of a different type of relationship between critic and the people that surround it, aka the restaurant and the customer. But even the good restaurant review, I think, would point at what can be done for this to improve. I think the point isn't that you don't have any judgment whatsoever, like Chappelle Ellison says, it's not for the purpose of judging something as good or bad, but actually judgment does happen, right? You do make some decisions of whether something is good or bad, but it's just more so much more than that one word, which is like, well, what is good about it? And can we have more of that? And what is bad about it? And how can it be improved? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think a restaurant review would be very helpful if it just said, this restaurant is not worth going to. Yeah. Period. Right. You as a reader, you would want to know, well, why not? Yeah. What exactly is it that's yeah. not good about it? What is interesting, though, is from the context of a restaurant critic, they come from a slightly different perspective, I guess. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's something you can shed some light on because for you as a teacher of design, reviewing design work, you are like someone that directly has the tools to execute. But as a restaurant critic, you may not have the culinary skills yet you're critiquing something on mm. that, which I think is connected, don't get me wrong, but then does it leave something to chance when you don't have the potential? And I, obviously, there might be some restaurant critics that used to be restaurateurs or chefs or whatnot, and that changes, but is there more credibility when you've actually been in the trenches and you know how to articulate how to improve things if we've established a baseline as a critic, as someone who's trying to improve the landscape? Mm -hmm. I don't think you necessarily have to propose the solution. And actually, this is one thing I said in these slides, which is that to avoid prescriptiveness, like a good critique doesn't mean that you get specific directions, steps one, two, three, four, to take on your work. A good critique would still leave room for you to come up with a solution. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. it's still possible for someone who is doesn't have the exact technical abilities to provide good feedback. The main difference, I think, is being specific. Like I talked a lot about specificity and Chappelle Ellison, who I referred to, also talks a lot about specificity. The thing that is least helpful in any situation, whether you're in design school or you're in a company or if you're a chef reading a review, is if people are very vague yeah. about their feelings to say, oh, I 
didn't know how I felt about this or I felt just kind of weird about it are not things that you yeah. can do anything with. Yeah. Like it's it's okay to have feelings, right? Like it's okay to say, I thought that was weird. If you go into a restaurant or if I don't know, you look Do you think at it's better this. left not said? It is better left not said if you can't follow it up. Yeah. Cause that happens a lot. Like I think that happens a lot in professional settings or even with clients. You're like, they can't pinpoint why something is wrong and they don't have the vocabulary. But I think maybe it's tough because I think these critiques often happen in different types of environments where you might not be face to face. It might be like, hey, teacher does this on their own time and they submit it back to you. You can't have a dialogue and discussion about it. Mm. I think in a school setting, it's better off not said, especially if you're in my position, if you're the instructor, if I feel like something is weird and yet I can't be more specific about why like i'm not gonna say that because that would totally throw a student off like yeah. they would not know what to do with it or they just feel bad about themselves like oh i made work that the teacher think is weird however if you are in a client feedback situation unfortunately i think unfortunately or fortunately like like you said clients don't have the vocabulary so it's on you to suss it out and to figure out what they're trying to say or communicate that's the skill in itself, to be honest. Yes. Asking no, like precisely. really, really tough questions or. I think to give criticism and to take criticism is, I don't know what type of skill to call it. It's not just a design skill. It's like a life soft skill. skill. It's a life skill. It's as much as, you know how people always say, oh, I want to practice public speaking as this kind of like life skill. Yeah. I think learning how to give and take feedback slash critique is a skill you have to practice. Extremely important. Yeah. Especially as it pertains to remote work, because that's going to be something that once optimized allows you to move more efficiently. Actually, the stakes are higher, don't you think, as well in remote work? Because you lose time. Like you don't have as much time to work with. Yep. And you have to make sure, okay, am I communicating enough, being clear enough in this one round so that things can move forward? The Otherwise feedback we lose loop like is a day. changed. Yep. Um, especially if you're working over multiple time zones. Yeah, so I gave in this presentation or in my class, I talked about how to give feedback, a couple pointers, and then how to receive feedback. And for how to give feedback, this is sort of a mishmash of things I read. I said that a person should be honest. The only way things can improve comes from directness. You should be fair. You pay equal amount of attention to all of the work and not just the first thing you see or the last thing you see. Or the thing that comes from the person you kind of like. And you should be kind. You yeah. Give the type of critique that you would want to receive. How should someone feel upon receiving critique? Mm. This is a question I'm curious. Because like, if you receive critique and, and it doesn't kind of cut you a certain way, does that mean that you didn't try hard enough? Or you, you probably delivered substandard work because you didn't even have an expectation around it? Well, I'm curious what you would say. I would say you should probably be jolted a little bit regardless, but as in like, Hey, like, well, I mean, this is me, but if someone gave me critique over something I really cared about, I would definitely think, Oh man, like, did I fail to consider that? Or is it really bad or what? But I think that if you have no reaction, no reaction in itself might suggest that you, you shipped off something that's subpar. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I think that's very accurate. No reaction could mean that you didn't really care in the first place or no reaction could also mean that you went into a critique slash feedback session prepared to shut everything down. 
Yeah. So you, before someone opened their mouth, you were like, well, whatever Eugene says, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to change my work anyway. And therefore then it doesn't affect me. So in terms of receiving feedback, my points were that a person should be open to hearing the feedback, attentive. And again, the word specific comes up. Yeah. If you don't get something, and this is so relevant to like freelance workers, if you don't receive the information you need, it's on you to hunt it down. Yeah. Like asking the questions what are that get some, it. What are some of the questions you like to ask or you think are good questions to yield clarity or actionable clarity, I guess? How do you how do you uncover the next steps? Let's say we're looking at, I don't know, some type of project that is large in a sense that let's say it's multi pages of pdfs or it's like an eight minute video or whatever okay like there's a lot of it and someone just sort of gives like a one sentence remark then i would ask them can you pull out a particular moment that you are uninterested in or interested in or a particular section and to narrow down okay is it this page that makes you feel uncomfortable is it this color Because often people, they have like a gut reaction after you show them, which is fine to have a good reaction, but you need to know, okay, are there specific moments that worked and specific moments that didn't? Yeah. Yeah. How about you? I think for me, it's often asking what success or what the best outcome looks like. And then maybe it's parsing the two and seeing where the gap lies. So if I give, if I ship off a piece of work that you like, don't like and be like, well, you know, asking Sharice the prof, like, what am I trying to do here? Um, and where do you think I was missing the mark? And where's the gap, right? And I think that creates actionable steps. And I think that's actually one one thing that's really important within the creative process is that, you know, I've said this so many times before, we often think creativity is this very loose and fluid process, but sometimes you actually need to apply some rigor to it i actually came across i actually came across something i'm trying to think of there's a word uh that was not inorganic but sort of like continually working towards a discovery so you know some things some people will like just let things happen like just on a whim and randomly and authentically like spontaneous yeah spontaneously some things opposite of that yeah all right you know what i've tried to find that word and i can't find it it's not coming to me. But in short, basically, it's along the lines of continually trying to arrive at a conclusion rather than just letting it hit you over the head. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was something to do. I remember the, the person I heard it from, oh, you know what? Maybe he meant Newton's apple. And I misheard it because it was on a Zoom call, right? So it's like sometimes the audio isn't the best. Sure. So I might have confused Eltonian apple or elton oh, for newton's apple yeah, that makes sense which yeah that's wait i don't know well i mean i completely agree yeah. with the idea of me this might not be the word but maintaining momentum that yeah. it's better to keep picking away at something or working on it even if you don't feel like you are moving forward so to speak if you just keep attempting it then something will come yeah i like it. this I, I like to look at life as a bunch of doors you open and close like you close some doors that don't make sense you open some doors you go in and then there's another set of doors and you're just continually opening and closing doors i'm gonna ask you a question even though i feel like i already know the answer but i'm gonna ask you don't you know anyway. me yes i'm gonna ask you anyway because i'm not gonna make assumptions are you good at receiving yes. feedback 
finish the question? Yes, I am. Yeah. I thought as much. But, but also. Why, well, why is that? Because was I, there ever a moment in time when you were bad at it? Yeah, probably when I was younger, maybe. When you were younger, you thought it was potentially more of a direct attack on yourself. And like your work and your identity were so closely tied. But I think now it's also maybe a little bit of this imposter syndrome where like you know your work or you feel your work is never that good. So any feedback from someone you respect and that's delivered properly is going to make your product better or give you confidence. Yeah. I mean, that's what I see in myself and that's what I see in all the students and the people around me. As you do more work, you become more open to feedback because actually you want you want it more. Like you know what to do with it. But when you're starting out, you feel really insecure about your work. And so any feedback you get like can completely derail you. You feel really sensitive. You get very defensive about it. And so one thing that I said to my students, again, to refer to this class, I said, your value is not one and the same with your work. Like you as a person are as valuable as an individual, whether or not you feel like the feedback you got was so-called like good or bad or mm-hmm. people liked your work or didn't like your work. Yeah. 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 I think for me, what sort of reduces the sting of feedback is actually the pre-production, aka like understanding the critique phase. Cause like to go back to client work, you would often do as much preparation as possible to understand what the outcome is so that you're just making sure that the gap isn't sufficiently large once you ship off something to get feedback and critique. Right. It's not it's not it should never be about you guessing what the other person wants. Because that's when things can really fall off the rails. We're like, oh man, I totally missed the brief or misunderstood it. Trying to arrive at some sort of like end goal, you should probably know what that end goal is before you start so that you minimize the distance between what you present and the critique, right? Like you should never be so far off because you haven't done your homework in the, in the first phases of the project. And one thing I think is actually really helpful is to provide tangible examples to make sure that you're along the right path so that for example like when you do a shoot right are you providing photos of what it should look like in the as an end product uh if you're delivering work or something like a a written piece is it in the format do they have an example of a format they like to use Uh, these are all things that reduce the guesswork Mm, and mm. i think in a lot of cases when there is an established relationship of critique, meaning me giving you homework, me giving this to a client, you know that there is a set of defined parameters. It's not like you're straight up an artist and you're creating work to be critiqued because that's not exactly how it works, right? Yeah, like artists it's not. create work. I mean, actually, in the same way, the restaurant analogy is different too. Yeah, it's they, not like the they don't create work. Gave the chef a brief and said, "This is what I'm expecting. Can you fulfill Good example, point yeah. A, B, C?" Yeah. But you're right. In the other context, such as in a classroom or with your client, the more you can establish beforehand makes the feedback round much more easier to understand. And everyone's on the same page. Expectations were made clear in advance. I also think for me, you know, you were talking about what took the sting out of feedback for you. I've become more open and interested in hearing new ideas. And not to say that when I was younger, I didn't like new ideas, but I think it's just that when you, I guess 
I'm not going to be ageist and say all young people are like this. Maybe when I was younger, I was more arrogant and thought that I had already thought of lots of good ideas. Oh, this is actually a great point because sometimes I, I feel like I've not seen everything, but I have trouble surfacing new ideas. Yes, exactly. So now if people in a feedback round say things that I didn't think of, I get very excited. Yeah, yeah, that's so valid. Because there are times now where if you're in a situation where you're constantly surrounded by quote unquote, yes, people, they're like, yeah, that's amazing. That's great. It's actually quite destructive because you start creating things that are unhinged, that don't really follow uh, maybe a particular course of relevance. Well, they, I mean, either way, it's more like the process could also be harmed. Yeah. Right. The paths that your mind takes kind of reruns like you just keep going around the same circuits instead of being open to like you said like having new doors to new rooms you didn't know existed yeah so that for me is what's exciting about good critique slash feedback all right over to you All right. My topic this week is overcoming Web3 bias, how to navigate strange new paradigms that could change everything unless they don't by Nathan Basquez. So this piece that appeared on Divinations discussed an interesting topic because it's less about Web3, which I'll also talk about, but more so how does one come to terms with shifting paradigms and how do you interact with them? Yeah. It just so happens that the paradigm he refers to here is Web3, but it could be applied to anything. Yeah. So this is an opening passage from Nathan that I think kind of encapsulates where his mind's at as he talks about it over the course of the piece. Some days I feel like the holy trinity of NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, and DeFi, decentralized finance, might replace the very foundation that society rests on. Other days, it feels like 90% vaporware and Ponzi schemes that collectively emit more CO2 than a medium-sized country. So in short, he's coming to terms with, on the one end, this new influx of technology that's going to radically reshape culture and society. And on the other hand, he's like, it's all a scam. Yeah. And, it, and it does a lot of destruction to our planet. It's an interesting place to be. Yeah, so... For those unfamiliar with, with Web 3.0, I'm I'm going to explain it more so so you can understand that the often context of this. Yeah, conversation. I think paradigm shifts in some ways are maybe a little bit more easily understood through technology, although mindset paradigm shifts can also exist, right? Religion. Yeah, religion. Even the even the loss of religion is mm -hmm. a paradigm shift. Yeah. So I'm going to loosely use Ethereum's comparison of Web 2.0. So, which is basically the internet we primarily know right now versus Web 3.0, which represents an incoming generation of the internet. Uh, so I pulled this from Ethereum's uh, site itself. Web 2 refers to the version of the internet most of us know today, an internet dominated by companies that provide services in exchange for your personal data. Web 3, in the context of Ethereum, refers to decentralized apps that run on the blockchain. These are apps that allow anyone to participate without monetizing their personal data. So there's some practical comparisons. So in Web 2, Twitter can censor any account or tweet, which we've seen. Payment services may decide to not allow payments for certain types of work, 
OnlyFans. OnlyFans. Servers for gig economy apps could go down and affect worker income. I'm sure this has happened with like some sort of outage. On Web3, Web3 tweets would be uncensorable because control is decentralized. Web3 payment apps require no personal data and can't prevent payments. Web3 servers can't go down. They use Ethereum, a centralized network of thousands of computers as their backend. So obviously Ethereum could be replaced with other blockchain um, consensus mechanisms, etc. And also I pulled something else. The Web 3.0 definition can be expanded upon as follows. Data will be interconnected in a decentralized way, which would be a huge leap forward to our current generation of the internet, you know, Web 2.0, where data is mostly stored in centralized repositories like AWS, like uh, Azure, etc. Furthermore, users and machines will be able to interact with data. But for this to happen, programs need to understand information both conceptually and contextually. All right, so where does that leave us? So Bastias pens this piece as a way to come to terms with the mental exercise of understanding paradigm shifts and how one person can potentially slot themselves into these experiences. And what I mean by slot in is, let's say Sharice is a Web 2.0 native, which anyone sort of born with the internet is for the most part, right? We weren't born with the internet. Pretty much. I mean, most uh, you've you've spent we're more close. time. We're close. We're close. We spent most of our lives. Most of our lives on the internet, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Web 2.0 native. And it's coming to terms with how much time do I invest in Web 3, and how do I come to terms with what's going to actually materialize as a meaningful change, and what's just as you said, vaporware or smoke and mirrors. It's not just how much time do I dedicate to Web3, but do I develop a stance? He sort of talks, I don't think he uses the word stance, but it's, do you hold some kind of position on it? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's not a belief. Like this article is not a debate over whether Web3 is the future or not but identifying key points that allow us to understand what's potentially happening. Sure, yeah. Right? And he lists out a few questions that speak about this battle that's kind of happening between Web 2 and Web 3. A broader narrative is also just the battle of paradigms. Like, it's often current stakeholders versus new stakeholders. Like, they're always going to be at odds with one another because one believes their paradigm is better. And obviously, they have a vested financial interest, obviously. I mean, we see this across generations we see this with every new generation essentially yeah and these are some of the questions that one can pose new paradigms don't work that well at first how could they sometimes they never become important remember 360 degree video sometimes they end up changing everything remember the internet the bigger the shift the harder it is to wrap your head around for example did you know time is relative to speed the more you learn about a new paradigm the more likely you are to believe in it thanks to the mere exposure effect and consistency bias. Also, thanks to these cognitive biases, most new paradigms seem wacky at first, so you'll resist taking them seriously, though this effect tends to be weaker if you're younger. If you wait to learn and act until the new paradigm is working perfectly, it's probably too late, i.e. Nokia and smartphones. On the other hand, if you go all in on a paradigm that ends up failing, you could waste a lot of time and money. For example, spending $600,000 on a beanie baby. And the last one... The stakes in the short run of making a correct assessment of a new paradigm are often low, so we align ourselves based on social incentives. What's best for our status within the in-group, rather than accuracy? For example, new paradigms can easily become crony beliefs. There's often this feeling of despair around a lack of understanding, but also that for some people, 
you engaging in a paradigm needs to follow some game plan. Like for example, some people are scared to jump in because they don't know where to start, right? I think that's actually a big thing when you're learning something new and you're not in a traditional classroom setting. Yeah. 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 But I think the reality, anyways, for me is sometimes you just dive head first in and some parts will click with you faster than others. But as you develop and train a muscle within a particular part of the whole, call it ecosystem, right? you actually develop the confidence and strength to do other calm tasks within. So you jump, you almost like island jump. I think that's like a island hop. I think that's a concept some people use sometimes where, you know, you've, you've surveyed all the land of this island. Now you hop to the next one and the next one and the next one. Cause that's the same thing for me. Like I've, I've been interested in, in the whole web three and even before web three was sort of the de facto catch all for this movement. I think I was interested more so as a way to solve media's monetization challenges and i it's still not solved to be honest it is to a degree with this new stuff where it's almost as though there's like a one-to-one relationship between content creators and funding models it's kind of like kickstarter without taking a percentage in a way right it's sort of like that things just never get perfectly solved is what i'm saying new issues will arise it's interesting you you said that this article is about paradigms in general, which it is. It happens to have some more specific writing about Web 3.0, which made me think about the fact that we've been talking about blockchain in some shape or form on this podcast for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And when you first started introducing those topics, it was a struggle for me. I had to do a lot of reading in prep for these types of conversations. Yeah. And I can trace basically my education on the subject through this podcast mm-hmm. of feeling more well-versed. And I completely understand the concern people have about, I suppose, sunk cost. Is that the right word? Yeah. That you might invest a lot of time Money. learning about something yeah. and that thing might not pan out. My stance on knowledge is that it doesn't go to waste money is something different yeah there is a whole investment side of web 3.0 but i believe the author says that he encourages people to focus more on reading and building as opposed to collecting and investing i'm also in a very different type of industry too where i basically package and sell knowledge right like from a marketing standpoint so your ability to understand how the world works is something I directly need versus if you're a pharmacist, you learning about That's fair. blockchain might not have the same everyday ramifications or won't really influence how you do your job. And That's for true. me, it does, right? That's fair. And I, I realize that because the media cycle for us is part of our job, but for some people, like, you know, they've just worked an eight or nine hour shift and they just want to know what's happening in the world and they don't have the time to sort through news and figure out, oh, is this valid, right? I actually yeah. think that's a really big issue because like our, your job less so now, but there was a point in time where your job was really to be on the internet and know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My job less so now. I still consider it to be a part of my job because I have students who will enter the workforce and I feel responsible for them being up to date. with what's happening but you are correct the nature of the job has changed somewhat i never thought so much about other folks 
reading habits and media diets because it feels so different from what we're used to. But they can totally miss out on years of a trend. You can just wait it out. Especially now. Especially if I'm getting, like I said, getting off work, I need to decompress. I open up Instagram or Facebook and whatever served to me there on a platter is what I end up consuming. That's just the way it works, right? Like there's, it's not a job required to go out and search and find stuff on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And especially the way most people's sphere of the internet is structured. They like six follow, apps. Yeah. And they follow exactly what they want to see already and they can mute and block yeah. whatever they're not interested in. And the algorithm just keeps feeding them the things they're interested in. So to some people, Web 3.0 is like another planet. Yeah, exactly. Until it has ramifications into their everyday life, then they'll it'll just continue to do its own thing in a different lane. Mm. There's this closing passage that I wanted to read that I th- believe does a good job of helping people understand these paradigm shifts. Whether you're a believer or not, the root cause of most mistakes people make when dealing with new paradigms comes down to two things, fear and arrogance. We fear we'll miss out and we'll fail or that we'll be judged and rejected, assuming that this person already wants to engage in the paradigm, right? And when we're not afraid, we're arrogant. We think the new thing is obviously bullshit or obviously amazing and it decreases our attachment to the actual truth. When dealing with a new paradigm, reason has its limits. The best strategy is to embrace curiosity and don't worry too much. Actually, like the same advice to give people going into critiques. Yeah, I was going to say there's, there is definitely there's so some sort of overlap there. here. Yeah, There's one thing that I wanted to share that is adjacent to this piece that Cherise had read. I'm not sure how you came across it because I think it was just perfect. You pulled it up very quickly too. You're like, oh, I read this a few days or a few weeks ago. Do you want me to share how I came yeah, across it? Yeah, how did you come it? across it? I follow the author of this piece, Drew Kaufman, on Twitter. As He's an artist? I thought their writing was interesting and started following him. And he's been writing a lot about the subject and yeah. shared it with you. Do you want to give a quick summary? Yeah, of I'll pieces? give a quick summary. Drew Kaufman's piece titled Crypto Pilt. It's basically almost like a journal entry. It's like how he went from being dismissive of Web3 and blockchain, crypto, NFTs, to now being fully engaged and actually moving his career into the world of Web3. And he talks about a few different things. He talks about how he started um, by minting NFTs, educating himself, eventually joining FWB, which is known as Friends with Benefits, which is like this token permissioned Discord server. So not where you find sex partners? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Essentially, this is an example of a person undergoing a paradigm shift in, in detail of every step of the way, going from being a skeptic, a cynic, and then, I mean, no, we said it's not necessarily a belief, but really who's someone who's very embedded in this area. What I personally found interesting was because I read this piece before you shared with me your subject yeah. this week. And part of the reason I read it was not for the Web 3.0 part, but it is an interesting human story when someone who is very anti something changes their mind and becomes yeah. very pro it. Yeah. And that could be true for any subject. Like, like you could. But, like yeah. one thing for me that I think about a lot is that when you are dismissive or you create a really high 
barrier for something to kind of cross the threshold out of the bullshit realm, you're forcing it to be worth your time, right? And it's like, obviously it takes time to kind of monitor the situation and see what's going on, but you're looking for moments where, okay, this is crossed over from being overly new, overly untested to like, okay, now it has some sort of credibility and everyone's threshold for what is credibility in a new paradigm will differ. But I think that, you know, once it hits your credibility for, you know, blockchain was always about like, oh, okay, the institutions are coming in, banks are coming in. Uh, that was some sort of validation, right? Okay. You know what? NFTs are validated now that Visa has come in or something. I don't know. Those are things that allow people some sort of mechanism. And, you know, some people like I used examples of traditional web two realm players, not to say that, you know, a bank is a web two player, but it's more of that generation of companies and brands. So that's the one thing that might be helpful for people that are kind of entertaining this idea of learning new things. When it comes to threshold, I, I agree with you. There are those types of validators. There's also more emotional, not necessarily logical validators where it could just be the girl I'm interested in keeps talking about this subject. So I'm going to learn about it because maybe it would impress her Mm -hmm. or my smartest friend has bought an NFT and if this person's going to buy an NFT, then there must be something there. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a big collective mass of traditional validators that will change people's minds. I think, I think that's quite interesting. Your tipping point could be totally different. Yeah. So I have for today. Yeah. Good conversation. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.